This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, has now published the synthesis report of its sixth assessment report. So this forms the final part of the sixth assessment cycle, which kicked off in 2015. So for eight years, the experts analysed thousands of scientific publications in order to make it easier for people like you and me, and also policymakers, to understand global warming, as well as solutions on how to tackle it. So what is this all about, really? So as the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres described it, the climate time bomb is ticking. The IPCC report is a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. It is a survival guide for humanity. So today on the show, I have two very special guests with me. Firstly, there's Professor Jim Ski. He has contributed to the work of the IPCC for almost 30 years and since 2015, he has been the co-chair of the IPCC Working Group 3, focused on climate change mitigation. Professor Jim is also the UK candidate for chair of the IPCC and he is an internationally recognised expert in climate research. He is also a Professor of Sustainable Energy at Imperial College in London. Also with us today, Professor Dr. Joy Jacqueline Pereira, who is a Principal Research Fellow at University Kabangs An Malaysia's Southeast Asia Disaster Prevention Research Initiative. She is also a Vice Chair of the IPCC Working Group 2 on Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability. So together, these experts are going to help us understand more about the Synthesis Report and how it will hopefully become a fundamental policy document to shape climate action during this pivotal decade. Welcome both of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, hello. Hello. It's lovely to have you both on the show with me. And apologies for the very long introduction, but I think I really need listeners to know how truly involved the both of you were in the IPCC's sixth assessment report. And you are, of course, these experts on the matter. So, um, Jim, maybe I can start with you. Shall we start with the basics? You know, so as I mentioned in the intro, the IPCC published the synthesis report. It is of the sixth assessment report. And this sort of forms the final part of the sixth assessment cycle. Can you quickly help us explain what the IPCC AR6 synthesis report is and why does it matter? Yeah, what the synthesis report does is is it draws together the conclusions of all the previous reports that IPCC has produced on on the physical science of climate change, on the impacts and what we can do to adapt to it. And also, as you said in in the introduction, the part I look after at, which is mitigation, which is actually reducing about emissions and, and trying to prevent climate change in the first place. And as I think you said in the introduction, this is a pretty frightening document mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Um, the, there's a very, very strong conclusion. It's us, it's human beings that are the cause of climate change. And the world has warmed by more than one degree uh, since we, we started with industrialization. We can already see the impacts of climate change almost by looking out the window, listening to the weather forecast. And I'm sure Joy can tell us a bit more about, you know, what the specific implications for this this part of, of the world are. Yeah. And we can see these impacts getting worse as time goes on. You know, we project it into the future, depending on the assumptions we make about how ambitious we are in taking climate change action. So the part of it that I look after is about reducing emissions actually, or potentially by taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, for example, by planting trees or uh, avoiding avoiding cutting trees down. And there, I have to say, because we know that we don't want to frighten people so, so that they hide away from the problem, we actually do come up with solutions there that can help us in the right direction. There are some optimistic pictures. You know, the cost of renewable energy 
has fallen dramatically in the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. And now 10% of electricity around the world is generated by wind or solar. We can see electric vehicles uh, appearing on our streets, which will also help to improve air quality. So there, there are definite, definite signs of movement. But believe me, we are still not on target for the kind of things that countries agreed under the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. So we, we've made a start, but we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, Professor Joy, anything you'd like to add to that? Yes, like Jim said, uh, the adverse or impacts from human-induced climate change will continue to intensify. These impacts would cover uh, water availability, food production, uh, health and well-being. Our cities are going to be warmer, settlements and infrastructure will be exposed to extreme uh, weather events. And of course, we have we expect impacts on biodiversity in and ecosystems. And every region faces uh, this uh, severe and compound effects. Huh? They are expected to be having cascading risks. And of course, the, like Jim mentioned, the extent to which our generation is going to experience a hotter world pretty much depends on the choices that we make now. Mm-hmm. See? So yes, I mean, you know, we talked about the synthesis report, right? And of course, that is uh, a summary of years of reports, right? And, and that's on uh, global temperature rises, fossil fuel emissions, climate impacts. Um, um, I do know that the first three sections covered the physical science of the climate crisis, right? Uh, that includes observations, projections of global heating, the, the impacts of the climate crisis and how to adapt to them and ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, that was, you know, published in 2021 and 2022, respectively. Can you... Um, I guess, you know, can you elaborate on some key takeaways um, of what we've already learned from the various IPCC assessment reports? Well, the the first report which came out in 2021 on the physical side of climate change, that was the one that said human beings are unequivocally the cause of the kind of climate changes that we're seeing. And that's the strongest statement that IPCC has ever had. And it's worthwhile emphasising that when, when IPCC makes a statement like that, it's not scientists sitting in the back of laboratory, uh, you, you know, coming up with something. We have to agree every word line with by line, every right? government around the world. So they've all signed up to this unequivocal statement. And it's a very powerful thing from which no nation around the world can ever back away from now when they're, when they're talking about climate change. And I think that's very important. And one other thing that our colleagues in Working Group 1 did, which I think was very successful, they produced something called an atlas. And that was a map of what kind of climate changes you could see, we could expect to see in very, very specific locations uh, that would help people to plan against the future, Mm -hmm. decide what kind of infrastructure, what kind of investments that that we could invest in that would make us more resilient to the the impacts of of climate change. So that, that I think, was the the big messages from Working Group 1. And maybe Joy's actually in the better position to talk about (laughs) Working Group 2, where she she was the, the vice chair. 
Yes, please, Professor Thank Chen. you, uh, Jim. Uh, taking on from what Jim said about the Atlas, and I think that's an important point to highlight, eh? and we would encourage people to have a look at the Atlas. And from this Atlas, you will see that, you'll see, uh, and even in the uh, report, eh, you will see the, the as the temperature rises, the annual hottest day, the soil moisture change, and the, uh, and the changes in rainfall become very spatially different. Mm. And if you actually look at some of these uh, uh, these changes, you will see, like for example, the rainfall is the wettest along the global equator and Southeast Asia. That's where we are located. So you'll find that uh, the frontliners, yeah, Southeast Asia would be in the front line of these kind of things. And we can expect a uh, risk of species loss to increase in this, uh, this particular belt. Uh, and you can expect higher humidity risk higher food impact risks. And, and in all cases, uh, you will see that happens along the equatorial belt. And this, the atlas really shows that uh, very clearly. And uh, unique ecosystems and extreme weather events tend, will tend to rise. The risk is going to rise. And in terms of coral reef, as we move towards 1.5 degrees, 90% of our coral reefs have disappeared from this region. Yeah. So those are the kind of uh, impacts that are projected from the science. Yeah. It's all quite bleak, isn't it? It's <laughs> rather bleak, but there is hope. And there is always hope. To yeah, that. yeah, yeah. We, we try to be the working group of hope after all the despair from the, the other working groups. So when our when our friends in Fiji ra had the presidency of mm. the Conference of the Parties when the Climate Convention, they structured it around something called the Talanoa Dialogue, mm. and there were three questions. There's where where are we now? Where do we want to go and how do we get there? And that was actually how we structured the summary of our Working Group 3 report on the mitigation of climate change, reducing emissions. Yeah. So first of all, on, on where we are now, well, emissions are still going up. In spite of everything countries have said, you know, emissions of greenhouse gases are still increasing. But we have started to bend the trend. We can see the impact of policies that governments have put in place, and they have actually prevented emissions that would otherwise have taken the place. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the spread of laws, institutions, policies all around the world, and we are pricing about, about a fifth of the carbon dioxide that's emitted now. There are incentives to actually keep it down. Yeah. And as I mentioned right at the beginning, you know, the costs of renewable energy are falling and we can see the nationally determined contributions, what co countries have put in to the climate convention. You know, there are ambitions for 2030. Mm -hmm. Now, the second question, where do we want to go? Well, I, I hope we can agree on that. It was in the Paris Agreement and all the also the Glasgow Pact from 2021. Um, you know, it's to uh, limit warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius or with pursuing efforts towards 1.5. Yeah. And basically the message was, was quite a simple one. Uh, you know, we need to get to net zero 
emissions of greenhouse gases globally by roughly the middle of the century. Mm-hmm. And if to put ourselves on that kind of pathway to limit warming to one and a half degrees, emissions would need to fall by over 40% by 2030, which is a pretty tall order, I have to say. So, but remember, it's somewhere between 1.5 and 2. two. That's, yeah. what, that's what the Paris Agreement says. It's slightly less ambitious. If the current nationally determined contributions are followed and we don't improve on them, it will probably place 1.5 degrees warming beyond reach. We will exceed that amount. If it's two degrees, we still have a chance, but we would really have to accelerate action. So the where do we want to now is uh, is the, you know, this kind of challenging part of it. That how do we get there? A very strong message. We have all the tools we need. Mm-hmm. We have the technologies. We have the techniques. What we need to do is put them in place and actually bring them about. So we can see examples all around the world of where countries are starting to make progress. There's about 20 countries where you can actually, they have had sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to scale up the action, spread it more widely, if we want to, we can. It's our choice. As human beings, we have agency and, mm-hmm. you know, we need to follow through. Maybe you can share some of those examples of countries that are doing it right. Yeah, yeah. we, we find it very difficult in IPCC to name countries ah, okay. uh, for <laughs> all, all sorts of I reasons. See. But let's just say many of, the, many of them are, are developed economies mm-hmm. and some of them actually started their reductions in the 1970s. You can trace it back to the oil crisis of the 1970s where they started to turn around. Other countries, much more recent, it's it's since the turn of the century, and they have quite clearly responded to the climate imperative in, in terms of putting in place policies. But my apologies for, for not naming and uh, phrasing in this case. No problem. I totally understand. Um, let's just go for a quick break. When we come back, you know, let's talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, you know, some of the biggest and easiest mitigation measures uh, that we can implement against climate and biodiversity collapse. I'm speaking today to Professor Jim Ski. He is the co chair of the IPCC Working Group 3. Also with us, Professor Dr. Joy Jacqueline Pereira, vice chair of the IPCC Working Group 2 on Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability, also principal research fellow at UKM Southeast Asia Disaster Prevention Research Initiative. We are, well, we're doing a a sort of a a breakdown of what the IPCC, uh, the synthesis report of its sixth assessment report is all about. I guess we want to talk about solutions, right? We know it looks quite bleak, but we also want to talk about how there are solutions, things can be done, it's not too late. We'll continue that discussion after this quick break. Keep it right here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. With me in the studio today, two very lovely people. I've got Professor Jim Ski. He's the co-chair of the IPCC Working Group 3. Professor Dr. Joy Jacqueline Pereira, vice chair of the IPCC Working Group 2. We are talking about the synthesis report of the sixth assessment uh, report on the IPCC uh, that forms the final part of the sixth assessment cycle, which kicked off in 2015. So, you know, for eight years, experts analyze thousands of scientific publications basically to make people like you and me understand more about global warming as well as solutions to tackle it. So we're finding out more about it and, you know, why it is a fundamental policy document to shape climate action during this very pivotal decade. And we are in a very critical stage, aren't we? Um, So, Professor Ski, you know, you mentioned um, uh, adaptation, right? And you co-chaired the IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius, right? And that was completed in 2018. So, you know, even back then you warned that emissions must be halved by 2030 uh, 
compared with 2010 levels, right, uh, to have a good chance of limiting temperature rises to 1.5 degrees. We know that, you know, there are some, I mean, emissions continue to climb. And we are already seeing, uh, as you both mentioned, climate events such as heat waves, you know, droughts, floods already exceeding tolerance thresholds. Um, do you think this is also affecting people's ability to adapt? You know, what does the report say about adaptation? Well, this is this is probably more Joy's area than mine, but uh, but but I, I think it, I think it's really important. There are many adaptation options that that are available, and it's a very broad spectrum because we have the issues of cities and settlements and the kind of things that can be done there, and we also have big opportunities more in rural areas with with, with land use and, and agriculture. But I think I think one very important message in both of these areas is that you can't really separate mitigation action and adaptation action. They're the two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, for example, if we think about cities, uh, providing more vegetation in cities, more water surfaces, benefits both mitigation and adaptation. They help to cool in cities, which means that the kind of the health impacts will be lower, Mm. air conditioning demands will be lower, but it also helps the city to adapt as well by perhaps managing flood risks and and, and other areas. There are many measures in terms of agriculture where you can make make big changes. For example, there are ways of tilling the soil that help to build up more carbon in the soil, which helps to adapt to climate change, but also it takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and helps with mitigation. Mm -hmm. So in these particular areas, it's it's not quite right to think of mitigation action and adaptation action. There is only action that has a mitigation consequence and an adaptation consequence. Okay. And Joy, of course, you know, this was, I mean, something that you worked very closely on. I mean, what are some of your thoughts on, you know, our ability to adapt and to mitigate as well? Yeah, I'd like to just echo what Jim said. Uh, Prevention is actually the most cost effective method for reducing risks and global climate change mitigation is critical in this context. And uh, there is a very rapidly narrowing window of opportunity for us to enable climate resilient development. And what is climate resilient development? Mm. It's essentially the process of integrating both mitigation and adaptation and towards the end of, you know, uh, enabling conservation of biodiversity, societal well-being and such. And there are many such uh, enabling conditions that one can uh, look to and we as uh, 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 from the IPCC have actually uh, uh, highlighted the need for inclusive governance, having diverse knowledge and value streams, of course finance and innovation and uh, integration across not only scales but also timelines. eh? And then of course ecosystem stewardship is critical in this context and the synergies uh, between climate and development particularly uh, for the developing world so and of course Jim has always stressed behavioral change you cannot look at this from a technology uh, perspective only behavioral change is also important but having said that I think uh, we need to ensure just transition and that is something Jim would really uh, can speak to being an 
advocate of just transition worldwide? Yes, I mean, that was actually one of my questions because, you know, um, we often say that, you know, those least responsible for the climate crisis are hit the hardest, isn't it? And I think in the report, it said adaptation is uneven. There were increasing gaps uh, between present risk and financing, especially mm. for adaptation, right? But yeah, talk to me a little bit about, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on, on just transition, I think, I think there's an increasing realisation with the ambition of the climate action that we need to to address the issue that the these very actions themselves have social and economic consequences okay. that we that we need to think about and if we don't design our actions very carefully disadvantaged groups may actually be worse off i mean the world is full of inequalities we could actually make it worse if we design our climate action in in the wrong way and you didn't mention it in the int- introduction but in a much colder place than Kuala Lumpur i'm actually chairing a just transition in my commission in my native scotland where we're picking our way through these very issues, including, for example, you know, there's a big oil and gas industry in Scotland. It's going to run down. It's already running down. But we need to think about the consequences for the workers and the communities that are affected. Mm-hmm. So there will be changes, you know, as we as we go through this transition. And the big challenge is to manage them in a fair way with that just that justice or that equity having an international dimension. We need to be fair between countries. But we also pay, need to pay attention to what happens within countries as well. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I did. Yes, I forgot to mention that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> that is yeah. a no, no, no. That is a huge part of your work, uh, your current work as well, isn't it? Um, but you know, I think in the, I think it was in the IPCC working group two, and that included a pronounced focus on the importance of addressing social inequities in climate vulnerabilities and responses. Right, that was quite significant, wouldn't you say? Uh, and that was uh, maybe you can explain, you know, why that was important and how the report cites the importance of justice and equity in proposing some p- solutions. Um, um, but, you know, aside from that, does it also go as far as allocating responsibility? I, I don't know who you're passing. This, Sorry, either this of one too. As soon as, <laughs> as soon as you mention responsibility, we get into politically delicate, uh, you, you know, kinds of issues. Um, so if we were to use a phrase like historical responsibility mm-hmm. you know, for climate change, it would probably not appear in an IPCC report because we would have real difficulty agreeing that kind of phrase with governments. But what we can do is look at the statistics and the analysis that is relevant to any discussion of that concept in a political, more political context. So one of the things we did in our working, working Group 3 report was we traced historical emissions by different regions back to the beginning of the industrial period and just drew very much attention to the fact that, for example, North America and Europe account for 40% of the cumulative emissions since 1850. So that's a very significant proportion. We also took snapshots of the per capita emissions, the amount of emissions each each member of the population is responsible for, and found very wide differences, you know, almost 20 tonnes per head in North America, just from energy use, uh, as, as low as two tonnes. 
uh, per head in, 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 I think, this part of the world, in Africa and, and, and in South Asia. So these are, these are simple facts, and it, but it's not for us. We are not politicians. We are scientists. It's up for the politicians to use these facts and take them on. But just to say that there was a great deal of interest shown in these numbers uh, you, you know, when we have taken it to the climate convention, we went to COP26, COP27, uh, these issues were definitely picked up. Mm-hmm. I just want to, you know, uh, follow on from what you mentioned. So there is something called the Summary for Policymakers, right? Yeah. Uh, the SBM. And that is, of course, negotiated, as you mentioned, line by line among governments and authors of the report. Um, so, you know, would you, I guess, you know, what would you say is the significance of the of the summary for policymakers? Are you hopeful that, you know, that is going to be something that is used by our policymakers to, yeah, to form the way forward? I think, I think they are used by policymakers uh, to take it forward. And uh, I think the evidence for it is the care that governments take over, ne- well, I shouldn't say they're not negotiations, they're, they're discussions between scientists and, uh, 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 and policymakers about the content, but they sometimes feel like negotiations <laughs> as, as, as we go there. The fact that every single uh, approval session, when we go through word by word, line by line, has overrun with very careful attention to the precise wording as chosen, is just a testament to the fact that governments know that these words matter and they will be used when governments come together in a political context to negotiate under under the climate convention. So these are very, very important things. And when you use like a word unequivocal in the context of climate change, nobody can backslide on that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and for Malaysia, Joy, I mean, are, are we, you know, are we also um, on board with um, everything that's come out in the uh, for the policymakers? You know, how are we doing in terms of um, adaptation, mitigation? How are we making our plans, you know, to to face this crisis? Right. I would just like to echo Jim and say that how uh, IPCC findings is policy relevant, but yeah. we're not policy prescriptive. And if you come down uh, to the Southeast Asian side, uh, it's very clear. The science is very clear that as you move towards 1.5 degrees, you have increasing exposure to weather and climate extreme. And that's the pr- a major problem in Southeast Asia and the equatorial belt. And then you would have cascading, uh, projected cascading effects such as uh, the, the driving of a displacement, for example, increases in losses and damage. Yeah? And uh, food security or even water security. And uh, particularly for the low-lying areas, uh, you find that those are... Uh, aspects to be concerned about. And uh, the Malaysian government, uh, we actually are taking into account that this uh, disaster risk reduction is one of our main problems moving on to the future. Uh, The National Disaster Management Agency actually has produced a national risk register and profile. the risk profile of Malaysia indicates that the majority of risks in the country, floods and landslides and storms and dry spells, they are all climate-influenced. So, uh, therefore, uh, near-term risk is of... critical importance and uh, there are uh, initiatives being planned under the uh, Malaysia plan, 12th mm-hmm. Malaysia plan, to address this, including a national policy on disaster risk uh, management, which is being spearheaded by the National Disaster Management uh, Agency of 
uh, Natma Nat Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Yeah? But at the same time, looking on to medium and long-term risks, you need a national adaptation plan. And the Ministry of Natural Resources is actually sourcing for funding to have that development plan in place. So we need to look at frame risks as a continuum over time, uh, starting with the near-term disaster risk reduction and moving on to adaptation, bearing in mind that mitigation is central to all of this emission reduction is the first step for prevention. So these things are all now uh, in place. And the Academy of Sciences, where I'm a fellow, we are also developing a position paper on how we can harness science to accelerate transformation and take it down to the state and local levels where you can actually operationalize climate uh, resilient development. Listen to the science, isn't it? That's yes. what <laughs> and how do you foresee that the uh, AR6 synthesis report um, uh, will impact the COP28 summit, you know, which is set to be held in Dubai at the end of the year? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would expect the synthesis re- report to have quite an, quite an influence. I mean, with every report that we produce, there's a request from the Climate Convention to come and present the report either at the COPs or at the sessions you have in the middle of the year, which also take place usually in Bonn and Germany. And that's the, that's the expectation. In fact, in about four weeks' time, there's a meeting in Bonn, which will be taking place, and IPCC will be very active there. Uh, we're in the middle of a global stock take process at the moment to see how well the Paris Agreement is being implemented. Uh, we've had several sessions on that. IPCC has been invited in to give its evidence to present it, to answer specific questions put to it by governments. And the final phrase of that, sorry, all the technical terms, the technical dialogue of the global stock take uh, is going to take place in Bonn in about four weeks' time. And again, IPCC people have been invited to, to have inputs. And of course, this is, this will be the first meeting since the synthesis report will be approved. Okay. All right. So that is a major talk, actually, yeah. that, is, that is coming up. So, you know, we've, we've got the report out. Uh, you know, it's been published. I guess, you know, the question I always ask is, of course, you know, what can we, the people, actually do to be also become part of the solution? Because you did talk about personal responsibility as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for the... for, for we, we paid much more attention to b- human behaviour and consumption patterns in this Working Group 3 report than ever before. Mm-hmm. In fact, for the first time in 30 years, we had a human being on the cover of, <laughs> of, 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 our, of our report instead of technical kit, which which had been the pattern in the past. So we devoted a whole chapter in our report to what we call demand consumption on the delivery of the services that human beings need, like nutrition, shelter, mobility. And there was a very strong message there that, you know, we could, by the middle of the century, we could cut global emissions by between 40 to 70 percent just by measures that affected the way that people consumed. Mm. Now, one thing to say about this, this is not all just about people going over to turn off the thermostat, turn down the thermostat or whatever. It was a very strong message that it needs to be human choices combined that we sort the way that these choices are guided for example, by the infrastructure that surrounds us or by the technologies that are available. So if you take transportation as an example, if we move to electric vehicles, sure we need people to make the choice of choosing 
an electric vehicle, but we need a charging infrastructure there for them to be able to trust it. We need the manufacturers to provide the vehicles. So there was a very strong message that it's human choice is important, but it's framed by other things like the world in, in which we live, the technology, the infrastructure which is provided. Mm -hmm. So that was a message not only for individual people, it was a message for policymakers in the private sector as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Joy, anything you'd like to add to that? Um, no, in addition uh, to that, I think in terms of preparing for extreme weather events and such, I think uh, businesses need to know whether they are going to be exposed to such risks and vulnerable groups also need to be identified so that we can take appropriate actions. Huh? So this is where action-oriented research comes in and plays a critical role so that science can help the government to identify this Okay. Again, listen to the signs. And um, in terms of finance, right, I mean, is that also something that we need to, to really be focused on as well? You know, it can be an enabler, but it's also been said as a barrier for climate action, isn't it? Well, I, I think, I mean, Working Group 3 actually did quite a lot on finance. We had a whole chapter on investment and finance this time. And it had some fairly strong messages uh, that basically the amount of money that's flowing into climate action at the moment is would need to be increased by a factor of between three to six mm. to put us on the kind of pathway we need to be on mm -hmm. by by 2030. And it is very uneven the way that finance is flowing. It's actually best for renewable energy. There are gaps, but it's best. And the reason is because renewable costs have fallen and people, can, private investors, can get returns on renewable energy. Mm -hmm. On the mitigation side, there are much bigger gaps on the energy efficiency side uh, and also on land use and agriculture measures, m much more difficult because you're often looking at small farmers. It's difficult to package up, get the incentives uh, and package up the money. And the gaps are much bigger for adaptation than they are for mitigation, partly because adaptation re relies on public finance. Mm. Adaptation is a public good. Whereas renewable energy, etc., you can somebody can make money out of it and mm. sell it, basically, which is not the case for for adaptation, and that has big implications for the way that funds flow. For example, from developed to developing countries, you know, we pick up on the fact that the developed countries have not met their pledge for a hundred billion dollars worth of funding. Uh, you, you know, and that, that's been missing for some time. The sad thing is $100 billion isn't nearly enough. We're talking about trillions. So we do need to leverage up private finance. And our report does talk a bit about the kind of the mechanisms and the ways in which you can trigger private finance, use public finance as the kind of lever to pull, pull more money in. Because mm. frankly, public, public funds are not enough to do what we have to do. Yeah. Enjoy anything you want to add to that? Maybe, you know, yes. in terms of what uh, individual sectors can do to scale up climate action. Right. Uh, to follow on with what Jim said, uh, I'd just like to emphasise that delay in mitigation and adaptation uh, leads to higher risk of uh, stranded asset and cost escalation, reduced feasibility of options, and also losses and damages. Yeah? So uh, the lack of financing is, uh, is real. But it is uh, one has countries have to be innovative, not 
to delay action in any case. And as Jim pointed out earlier, the economics of benefit of human health, for example, in cities from air quality improvement, not only promotes mitigation, but it also gives us better health. And in terms of cost, it's in the same order of magnitude as mitigation costs. So, and it's even potentially larger. So if we were to invest using our own money to clean up air pollution in the cities, we directly benefit and our children benefit. So these are things that we really need to weigh in as well. And holding our breath, waiting for financing is not the excuse uh, uh, that we should take as a nation. And I'm speaking specifically of Malaysia. Okay. Thank All you. Right. Okay, so the situation is not that great. Uh, it is getting worse, but but of course we have enormous opportunity to change the course. I think that is the bottom line of you know all the IPCC reports. Um, I guess you know for just any last message or any concluding message that you'd like to leave our listeners with. We always try to end on a, a note of hope, I suppose, right? Well, you you to took the well. words out of my mouth. Actually, I was saying, <laughs> don't, look, it it can seem really bleak, but don't despair would be the message. There is hope out there, and human beings can do something about it. We have the power to do it. We just need to make the choice. Okay. And for you. And uh, we need to pursue climate resilient development, which is the process of integrating both adaptation and mitigation at the local level and taking into account near-term risk reduction as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Professor Jim Ski, co-chair of the IPCC Working Group 3, and Professor Dr. Joy Jacqueline Pereira, vice chair of the IPCC Working Group 2. She's also a principal research fellow at University of Bangsan Malaysia's Southeast Asia Disaster Prevention Research Initiative. Um, if you can, do read the IPCC 6 assessment report uh, or perhaps read the synthesis report. Uh, it's been summarised. There are numerous infographics, tons of easily digestible analysis available. Uh, you can start off by visiting the official website of the IPCC at ipcc.ch All the information is there and it's a great starting point to help you understand the issues at hand but if you miss any part of our conversation today you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth or you can find it on the BFM app This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture BFM 89.9 You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9 The Business Station For more stories of the same kind download the BFM app